You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 29. If you don't have a Bible, we have several back there for you. We're going to finish 1 Samuel tonight looking at chapters 29 through 31. And we left David in Ziklag. He had joined forces with the Philistines and had basically attempted to to make it look like that he was um, in agreement with them, that he was friends with them, that he was now turning his back on his countrymen, his own nation, and, and he was going out and pretending like he was raiding his own people and killing his own people, but in reality, they were the enemies of Israel. But Achish, the Philistine king, really didn't know any different. And, and he was sort of pulling the wool over Achish's eyes and, and giving him the impression that he had turned his back on his own nation. But at the same time, David was completely out of the will of God. He, he was backslidden. He was going out and murdering people men and women and children. He was raiding. He had basically become a common thief, him and his 600 men. We left Saul with a medium. Saul consults a a woman who spoke with the dead, and she had, through her satanic abilities, conjured up an image. We're not exactly sure uh, what all was entailed in this, but she spoke. She was able to speak with Samuel and And Saul had devolved so far in his life. A man who started out so well has spiraled down to the point where he's now consulting a spiritist to speak with the dead because he can't hear from God anymore. He wanted so desperately to hear from God, but really he didn't want to hear from God because for years God's been speaking to him and he's not obeying. And we can kind of relate to that conflict where we desperately want to hear from God in, in His Word, but in reality we don't because when He does speak to us, we don't listen to it. And it's like, God, I want something new. I want to hear Your voice. But really what we're saying to God is, God, I want You to tell me what I want to hear. And as long as it's convenient for me, then I'm, I'm happy about it. But God speaks to us and His Word is like a bullhorn speaking to us constantly and we're not listening to it. So why would He give us anything new? And that's sort of what was going on with Saul. And Saul is a mess and and his life is going to come to an end in our text tonight. It says, Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies and we, we saw that they were preparing to fight against Israel. And that was now the conflict that David is facing is to really put his money where his mouth is with Achish. Because for 16 months, he's been telling Achish, hey, I'm on your side, man. I'm no longer loyal to my people. I'm your man. I'm, I'm a general in your army. You tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And now it's time for him to really prove that. And it says the Philistines gathered their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? 
And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with Achish. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. And do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary, our enemy. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And so the Philistines, besides Achish and his army, do not trust David. They're like, look, he's an Israelite, and once a Jew, always a Jew, this guy is going to become an enemy to us. I can see it now. He needs to go back. They didn't trust David, and probably for good reason. Achish has been pretty naive this whole time. And it's funny, this song that these women had sang to David and to Saul has become like the number one hit of the land. And they're still singing it years later. And Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and your going out and your coming in with me in the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. They don't trust you. Therefore, return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, But what have I done? And to this day... What have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the king? Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you, and as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Obviously, David is discouraged about his own nation. It it was clear back in chapter 27 where it says, David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. He figures that it's hopeless. The people are loyal to Saul. Saul is going to be the king forever. God's word is not going to come to pass. His promises aren't true. And David has been discouraged now for over a year. And so discouraged that he's even seemingly willing to go along with the plan to fight against Israel. Little does he know here that God is giving him a way out. And in the meantime, saving his life. Because if David went into battle and then turned on them, surely he would compromise his men in his own life. And so David doesn't recognize that God is really sparing him here. He's sparing him a lot of grief. And even though David was in a bad place, even though David was really backslidden and had turned his back on the Lord, God is still blessing him and God's still working in his life. And now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag. So they go back now, back to, to the temporary home that they've set up in the land of the Philistines, this area called Ziklag. And on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south in Ziklag, they attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire. And so they're 
making their way back. It takes them three days. They're tired. They're hungry. They can't wait to get home to their wives, to their children, get a good night's rest. You can imagine you've been traveling on foot by and large. They're exhausted. And as they're making their way back, they begin to see smoke that's rising from the burning of their city. The Amalekites had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. But they did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. And so while David and his men are gone, while all the men are out fighting with the Philistines, here come the Amalekites. They seize upon the opportunity. They raid Ziklag. They burn it to the ground. They take all the women and children with them. But they were more merciful than David was. And that while David was going out attacking all these surrounding nations, David was killing the, the women and children. And you can read about that in chapter 27. So they showed more mercy, these pagans, these enemies of God, showed more mercy than David did. So when David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept, until they had no more power to weep. I think at this point, David has finally hit the bottom. He realizes that his sin has brought him to this place. That his sin has now not only affected his own life, it's affected all of his men. They've destroyed their city. They've taken their women and their children, all of their possessions. And David and his men just lose it. They lift up their voices. They weep until they had no more power to weep. And maybe you can relate to that. Just kind of coming to a place where you're so discouraged, defeated. You've hit rock bottom. You've got nowhere else to fall. You can't get any lower than you are. And you have no more power to weep. You're just done. You're spent. And that's where David and his men were at. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, which sounds like a candy, had been taken captive. And now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I think at this point, David has an epiphany. I think he realizes that he has become Saul. Because Saul, by his sin, had brought David to the point where he had to flee into the wilderness. Saul, because of his sin, had made David and all these men come to the point where they lost everything. And now David, because of his sin and his rebellion to God, has done the very same thing. He's brought these men to a place where he compromised their livelihood, their families, and you guys, our sin not only affects us, it affects the people around us, especially as men. Men, your sin, whether you have children at home or not, doesn't matter. Whether your kids are grown and gone or whether you have little kids or teenagers or whether it's just you and your wife, your sin affects other people. And certainly, David's sin had huge repercussions for 600 men in their families. But David seeks God and he finds strength in God is what this means. David strengthened himself. It really has nothing to do with David, but it has to do with the fact that David found strength in the Lord and allowed God's 
strength to flow through him. Somehow, even though he was at rock bottom, he found the ability to turn to God and to find strength in his time. And you know what? Some of us are at that place where you're at rock bottom and you need to completely turn to the Lord and find strength in him because you've got nothing left and that's where God wants you to be. And then David said to Abiathar, the priest, you remember him from previous chapters, the, the son of Ahimelech, who was the priest at the time who was killed at the hands of Saul. And Abiathar, his son, escaped and, and found asylum with David. And David says to him, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, that is the Lord answered David, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. Now notice the difference. Saul had sought the Lord as well and God didn't answer him. And Saul was backslidden. What's the difference? The difference is that God knows our hearts. And God knew that Saul had no concern to hear from him whatsoever. He had been given opportunity after opportunity to obey the Lord and he had completely and willingly disobeyed and rebelled against God. And God knew David's heart. And David, although in a place that he shouldn't have been, although backslidden, although in rebellion, although taking matters into his own hands, although taking his discouragement from chapter 27, verse 1, where he begins to talk to himself and discourage himself, and rather than listening to the Lord and hearing the promises of God, certainly David was not in a good place. He was not in the place that he was in back in the cave of Adullam where he wrote all those psalms, where at a very low point in his life, having lost everything, David was able to say that he would praise God despite his difficulties, where David was able to turn his eyes upon the Lord in spite of his struggles and his hardships. David's not in that place anymore. But God knows his heart and God speaks to him. And, and if you've been in a place where you've been in rebellion to God, whether anybody knows about it or not, but your, your heart has not been in a place of intimacy with God and you're not listening to the Lord and you've turned your back on him, God knows your heart. And if you truly want to hear him and you want to turn your life around and you want to get things right, God will speak to you. And so David went out. He and the 600 men who were with him and came to the brook Besor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind, who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Besor. So I want you guys to remember these 200 individuals that stay behind. Then they found an Egyptian in the field, and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had not eaten any bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. So David and his men are, are going after the Amalekites. They're going to try to find their wives and their children and get their stuff back. And on the way, they see this Egyptian man who's at the point of death. He hasn't had any food or water in three days. I mean, we know that after about three days without water, you, you will dehydrate and die. So this guy's at the point of death. And David says to him, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? And the man said, I am a young man from Egypt. 
I'm a servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. So the Amalekites go, they raid Ziklag, they take all of David and his men's wives and children and all their stuff. They're heading out. This guy gets sick, and they just leave him behind. So David and his men just happen upon this guy. And again, this is the Lord leading them exactly where they need to be. And he begins to tell David of the story. He says, We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag, David's city, with fire. And David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. And so David realizes this is God's hand and God's leading and God's blessing and his grace upon him because they have no idea where these Amalekites are at. But they just so happen to find this Egyptian who just so happened to get sick and then just so happened to get left behind so that they would run into him. And this is God's sovereignty and his hand leading them because David inquired of the Lord and asked, shall I pursue this troop? And God said, pursue them for you will overtake them and without fail recover all. That was God's promise. And here is the means by which God is bringing that promise to pass. And when he had brought him down, there they were spread out all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. So about 24 hours worth of battling. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. And so even though David was in sin, and even though in reality he deserved the consequences that came with that sin, because he turned and he repented, God blessed him, and he recovered all. In fact, we're going to see that he recovered more than what he started with. It says, Then David took all the flocks and herds that they had driven out before those other livestock and said, This is David's spoil. And so not only did David receive what he started with and what they stole, but he received all of the Amalekites' possessions and their livestock as well, the spoil of war. And so despite his sin, God blessed him. And you know what? David, who, who really throughout Scripture is, is always a picture of Christ, as Jesus came through the line and lineage of David, David speaks of, of Jesus so often to us. And David was able to now go back to his men and present them not only with what they started with, but with blessings on top of that, despite their sin, despite the fact that they weren't in the will of God. And you know what? Our sin, you guys, had stripped our lives to nothing. It had burned our life to the ground, just like Ziklag. Our sin had destroyed us. And yet Jesus came, and not only does he restore our life back to, to where it should have been to begin with as we destroyed it, but on top of that, he blesses us. As Ephesians says, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
And so because these men were willing to stop and to say, this is ludicrous, we're sinning, we need to turn from this, because of that, God blessed them. And yes, there were consequences, their city was burned to the ground, but in reality, it was all restored to them. And that's what God wants to do in your life. He wants to give you a new life. He wants to bless you, not because of your good works, not because you have it all together. What did David and his men really do besides disobey God? They hadn't done anything worthy of being blessed except turn to the Lord by faith and believe his promises. Instead of David talking to himself, which he had done in chapter 27, he now begins to talk to the Lord. And when God spoke, he listened and he went. And then along the way, God gave him an opportunity to minister to this Egyptian man who in reality was an enemy. And David listened to the Lord and ministered and served this young man and blessed him. And now God's blessing David. And, and I think this Egyptian, the story here with David giving this young man water and, and bread, David could have just left this guy for dead. In fact, he could have got the information he needed from him, and then left him for dead. Or he could have just ignored him altogether. But either way, he would have been missing out on an opportunity to minister to somebody else. And when I think about this story, I think about the fact that David and his men were at rock bottom. They had nothing. Their families had been stripped from them. They were penniless. They had lost their homes. They're on their way to recover these things. And here's somebody who's in even worse position than they are and they ministered to him and and this is a great illustration for us i i think in the times in which we live many of us are are struggling many of you are going to struggle this year and and some of you have lost homes some of you may lose homes you may lose that the the two cars and have to go to one or you may lose both or you may lose a job the the savings that you had built up is, is now being spent just to pay the bills. And, and you may lose a lot of things like David had lost, but there's always someone who's in worse shape than you are that God is going to give you an opportunity to minister to. And I mean, you might think in your mind, well, of course, when they come upon this young guy, they're gonna minister to him. They're gonna serve him. They're gonna help him out. They're gonna give him some bread and water. I mean, that's just common sense. Well, it really isn't. The guy's on his deathbed. He's out in the desert. He's from Egypt. He's an enemy. Just let him die. Put a sword in his gut and leave him be. I mean, these are brutal men. These guys don't work in an office. These are David's men. They're brutal. But they found compassion in their heart for this guy. And so don't just pass it off as, oh, common sense. Of course you would do that. No, the same thing is true for you in the opportunities that you're going to be presented this year, in this time. You will have opportunities. And, and maybe it's just giving somebody five bucks to buy a loaf of bread and a gallon of milk. You can't even buy those two things with $5 anymore, but you get my point. Maybe that's all you've got. Maybe it's just giving somebody some extra canned goods that you have in your, in your cupboard. Maybe it's paying a power bill for someone. Maybe it's just doing something tangible. If you're a mechanic and you know your neighbor's car is broken down and, and you can fix it, you help them. Or if you're a handy person and, and you know the single mom across the street has some projects that need to happen and you can help them. See, there's so many opportunities that, that we have if we'll just have vision. 
and be creative. You guys, vision is, is for all of us to have. And, and I pray, and my heart for you guys is that you will have vision. It's not just my job to have vision for, for this church and for you. I pray that this year you'll have eyes to see the opportunities that are in front of you. The, the Egyptians who are laying on the side of the road that God brings you to who need your help. Ask God to give you that kind of vision, to give you those kind of opportunities. I can guarantee it. If you pray for opportunities, God will bring you opportunities. And where he guides, he will provide. So don't think, well, if I pray that, he's going to give me opportunities and I don't have the money. I don't have the skills. I don't have the time. Listen, God will give it to you. And it will be the most exciting thing that you will do is to help somebody else. And so ask God to give you opportunities and God will bless you. And if you're in a place like David and his men where you've turned your back on God, now is the time to get back where you need to be and to turn from that and begin to obey God and watch him bless your life. And now verse 21, now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Besor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. So now they're on their way back. They've, they've conquered the Amalekites. They've got their wives and their children back and all of their possessions. They come back where they left the 200 who were so weak they couldn't go. And then the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David. This is God's perception of these men. They're wicked and worthless, some of them. They said to David, Hey, because these 200 did not go out with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. And so in other words, look, they didn't do anything. They stayed back. They were too wimpy. They were tired. They didn't go. So forget them, David. They're not part of of the dividing of the goods. We're not giving them anything. They had nothing to do with this. But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike." So it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. So I think there's some great application. I think one of the clear applications is that we're in a battle in ministry, in life, in serving the Lord. And some of us are on the front lines of that battle. Some of us are, are in places, in positions that are very public and very out front and everybody sees just like the 400 that went out to fight. But for those 400, there were 200 that were back keeping watch over their supplies. And even though they really weren't part of it, even though they weren't out in the front, they received the same reward. And some of you are not involved in public ministry. You're not out in front. You're, no, you're not noticed. You're doing behind the scenes kinds of things. And know this that your reward will be the same as, as mine or, or any of the leaders who are out front, who are up praying with people or giving Bible studies or leading ministries, that if you're supporting those people, if you're supporting us as leaders in prayer, financially, serving in areas that nobody notices, and that 
nobody even knows about, the Lord sees and he will bless you. And your reward, which may not be now, is coming. And God's going to bless you big time. I think the other application is that those that stayed behind really had nothing to do with the victory at all. In reality, they, they didn't risk their lives. They didn't have to put out any effort. Some of them may, may have been afraid. They were scared. That's why they didn't go. They were tired. And that's why the 400 don't want to give them anything. And here's, here's the clear application is that as Christians, we haven't done anything to deserve, to deserve our salvation. Jesus went out and he won the victory. And he brought us back the blessings. And he said, here you go. And I think it's the tendency of some like these 400 to be self-righteous. To think, you know what? I've been a pretty good person. I've been faithful to my spouse. I show up at work on time. I give money. I help people out. And this guy here who's an absolute loser, this lady here who has just filled her life with sin and rebellion and has done nothing worthy of blessing, she's going to get the same reward I have. Very similar to the prodigal son's brother, right? Why is he being blessed? And you guys, we have to fight against that, especially those of you that maybe grew up in the church, especially those of you that have been walking with the Lord for a long time, especially those of you that have really never done any major sin. You've been faithful to your spouse. You've, you, you were a virgin when you got married. You're a hard worker. You provide for your family. You've raised or are raising your children up in, in the things of the Lord. It's very easy f- for you, if you're in that position, to get self-righteous. It's actually very easy to begin to slip away from the Lord in that place and to begin to think that it's about you. And that's where that judgmental attitude comes from and the superiority and self-righteousness. And it's why the church so often shrivels up and dies because we can't relate to people. We think we're better than the, the world. We get this us versus them mentality. You guys, we gotta, we gotta put that all out of our thinking. We got to get that out of our perspective. That should not be our mindset. We should see ourselves as dirty, rotten sinners. And even though you haven't committed any major sins in maybe a long time, maybe years, maybe ever, and you think to yourself, I'm a pretty good person. You've got to have the Lord reveal your heart to you. You've got to begin to ask God to show you your pride and your self-righteousness and really the root of sin. Even though there may not be a lot of fruit of sin, the root of sin is there. And God wants to, to purge that out of your life. And God doesn't want us to, to see ourselves as superior to others the way that these 400 thought they were superior to the two. We're all worthless. I've heard Bible teachers say that if you're not doing this and this and this, you're not even worthy of the gospel. You're not worthy to have a savior. And in reality, they're, they're making a point. But if you think about it, is anybody worthy of the gospel? Is anybody worthy to have a savior? Absolutely not. Now, David came to Ziklag. He sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To those who were in Bethel, those who were in Ramoth, 
of the south, those who were in Jader, those who were in Arior, those who were in Sifmoth, those who were in Eshtemoa, those who were in Rachel, those who were in the cities of the Jeremites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in Horma, those who were in Chorashan, those who were in Athak, those who were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. And so David sends out part of the spoil to all these cities. He, he shares the wealth. He blesses these people. Quickly, chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hid him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me, torture me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And so as David is out fighting the Amalekites and, and winning the battle there and getting back his, his wives and his children and all of their possessions, the, the battle that the Philistines were waging against Israel is still going on. David was sent away from it, but that's still going on. So the whole scene with David and his men was kind of parenthetical. Now we're back. The Philistines fight against Israel. They shoot Saul. They hit him with bow and arrow, and he's wounded. And Saul knows he's going to die, but he, he wants to die before the Philistines get to him and, and torture him. And so he says to his armor bearer, look, kill me. Will you, will you just put me out of my misery? And the armor bearer won't do it. He's afraid. So Saul kills himself. And that's the end, the tragic end of Saul's life. A man with such great potential, but because he failed to, to listen to God, be, because he failed to cultivate a relationship with God, this is how his life ended. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shon. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, and all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. And so if it wasn't bad enough that Saul killed himself, his body was decapitated, his head was removed, stuck up to, for all to see, word went about, Throughout all the land, he, he, him and his legacy became a mockery. His body was, was used in, in the temple of the pagans 
And in that culture, how you handled a dead body was a, was a big deal to the Jewish people. And so Saul's life not only ended tragically, but his legacy was even further tarnished with, with how his body, his dead body, was, was put to shame in, in front of all these pagans. And they were all able to look and to see how far this man had fallen. And so we're going we're gonna to end our study in the life of David here as we uh, do the eight-week Dave Ramsey series. But we'll pick it up after that in Second Samuel. The end of Saul's life and now the beginning of David's kingdom. The end of Saul and his kingdom and now the beginning of David in his kingdom, in his reign. And David's going to continue to make mistakes. And David's going to continue to struggle, but God continues to have his hand on David's life because David was a man after God's own heart and he continually repents and turns back to the Lord, something that Saul never did, tragically. And that's why Saul's life ended the way that it did. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you for this study in 1 Samuel and and just the the juxtaposition between Saul and David, Lord, and, and the life of a man whose heart was hardened toward you and the life of a man whose heart was soft toward you, a man after your own heart. And God, I pray for each one of us tonight that our hearts would be toward you, that, Lord, even though we might have turned away from you, that, Lord, we would turn back to you, that we would repent, that we would be quick to confess, that, Lord, we would be quick to receive your grace and your mercy. Not using that as a license to sin, God, but, but using that as confidence that you don't condemn us and that you love us and that you're the God of second chances. And Lord, I, I pray that we would be David's and not Saul's. Lord, I pray that, that these truths that we've learned in First Samuel, that we learned tonight, that Lord, these things would deeply impact our life and that, God, we would not only be hearers of your word, but doers of your word as well. God, I pray that these things would produce much fruit in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.